Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Matt, good to see you. How are you? Mr. Greg, I am well. I am well. How are you today? Doing really well. We're uh, in the throes of summer, uh, getting ready for the 4th of July sort of week and weekend and then festivities. So uh, this sort of feels like the unofficial launch to summer. You know, I know the official, you know, season is, you know, June 21st or June 22nd, whatever it is year to year. But uh, for some reason, the, the, the 4th of July you know, uh, holiday really seems to kick things off, at least my, in my own head. Yeah, same. I think um, this is when everybody, I think, starts getting into it and we've got it. You know, the fourth is, you know, on a Monday and it's always nice when it's on a shoulder day of the weekend, right? So you not just get the day off, but, you know, it ends up being a long weekend for just about everybody. Probably a nightmare for people who want to actually travel during that week. Yeah, yeah, I saw, you know, uh, AAA always does their sort of their their weekend uh, holiday, holiday travel guides, which they, you know, it's plastered all over the news and, and the sites and everything. And, and they're saying, of course, you know, the, the Thursday and the Friday and the Saturday leading up to is is always the craziest travel time. And so, you know, keep your patience <laughs> if you're out and about. Unfortunately, a lot of people have been missing flights. I know. You know that that the airlines are, are pretty stressed right now. It's making you know some people's travel kind of difficult. So you know, I guess uh, good luck and safe travels to anybody who's out and about. Yeah, absolutely. Our friend um, from another podcast, uh, Jello from the Fighter Pilot Podcast, as you know, he's you know his day job. He's a uh, a pilot for Delta now that he's out of the Navy, and I know that's just been such a hard like road to hoe for pilots and and you know, cabin crew over the past couple of years, you know, people getting kind of laid off, a lot of uncertainty, then a lot of sick outs, both, you know, legitimate and, you know, other issues, um, you know, and now I think, uh, you know, there's potential labor issues and all of the other stuff. And yeah, it's, I, I wouldn't want to be in the, the position of the crew or the people who have to fly right now. And I'm, it's almost a blessing to not have, you know, massive plans. I'd love to travel, but I'd love to really just be able to miracle my ass wherever I want to go and yeah. skip the airplane. Yeah, no kidding. We did, you know, of course, last year we did some some major travel and we talked about it on the pod. And this year it's uh, much more localized uh, to some degree and uh, just a little simpler, no airfare. So I'm, I'm also glad that, that that's not the case for us. You know, we're actually just in a couple of days going to head out of town, uh, really get off the grid. Um, and, and sort of do some, you know, uh, some outdoor activities, some camping and sort of unplug. So we're, we're looking forward to, you know, getting packed up, jumping in the car and, uh, and being outside, you know, away from sort of the, the hustle and bustle for, for just a little while. Yeah, that's bitching. I, um, I won't, I mean, I know where you're going. I won't ask you to say, but are you in the situation that you're going to be going into? Are you doing like cabin camping or you know, tent camping or how's that going to work? 
you know, we're doing tent camping and the kids have never done tent camping. So this is, this is going to be either super fun and eye opening or incredibly frustrating <laughs> or both or all of the above, quite frankly. So yeah, we're, we're going to be, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to do the, do it the, the, the full, you know, full stop. And, um, it should be really fun. It should be really interesting. Weather should be nice, I think. And, um, you know, it's going to be, uh, I think we'll do a full report, you know, when, when we get back and, and share how it went and, and sort of our thoughts on, on the location and everything. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, um, I think that will be an education for you and your kids and yeah, you just got to plan and have a lot of stuff for them to do. Exactly. The, now the good news is there's several other, you know, there's a couple of families and several other kids. And, and so I think we'll have the, the built-in, you know, entertainment in some ways there, but, uh, but I don't know if they're quite, I don't know if they're they're ready for what they're about to get into, but they're kids. They're uh, they're pretty malleable and uh, they're resilient, and and they'll make the the best of it. No, absolutely. If you've got other kids and in a uh, an unusual environment, and you've got you know mountains and trees and water for them to play around, um, I think you're going to be good to go. It should be cool. Yeah, it'd be great. And I'm gonna you know we're gonna be off the grid. So as much as I love everybody and and checking in, uh, it'll be nice also to to disconnect. Uh, focus on other things for for just a short while and and then when we get back you know jump back into it and see what everyone's been up to again including yourself how about do you have any plans coming up for the long weekend i know you have some some time that you can kind of dictate on your own for for a little while yeah we have um the the organization that i work for it's a relatively new development for us but that we're basically putting a pause for a week and i think that the company probably looked at it in such a way and said you know 50% of the workforce is out anyway and a lot of our customers are out around this time we're just going to shut down um so i i still have work to do you know but um i won't be out doing my usual thing and yeah i'll probably kind of carry on and maybe goof off with my kids around the house and catch up on some projects and things like that i am, you know, just because of the fact that you're out of pocket and we're due, um, we are going to be doing a kind of a one-on-one recording with a special guest. I won't say who, um, but we're going to have basically somebody be kind of a a guest sub host, um, next week. And this, what we're recording right now is just going to be like a 10 or 15 minute kind of preamble to that, which we will tack onto that. So if you're listening right now, you'll, you'll probably notice in a few minutes that Greg goes away and somebody else comes on. But that, of course, will actually magically. I feel like I'll be part of the episode, which I am, right? So it, uh, it, yeah, it, it's kind of that's the the beauty of uh, technology these days. Yeah, absolutely. So that's basically what's in store and what we're doing today. So hey, we've kind of done our little small talk, but let's let's do the usual thing, man. What is on your wrist? What is on your glass? Let's do a uh, wrist check, pore check. On the wrist is the Oris Big Crown Pointer Date 80th anniversary. So that's the green dial variant in bronze. Uh, 40 millimeter with the coin edge bezel, you know, at this point now with the new, uh, ref, the new references of, of this particular model to be a little more specific, probably in, in, uh, identifying it, you know, with the new, the new pointer dates and, and sort of the new, you know, sizes, the new caliber and everything. But, uh, this is, a, this is a favorite. I really do love this one. Uh, was able to, you know, take it back to Feldmar on our field trip a few weeks ago, which was kind of fun because that was my first really in-depth uh, interaction with Feldmar at the time, you know, a few years back now. And so I put it back on, I know this is a favorite of yours, the, uh, drew straps, uh, military green army canvas, uh, which is just a really, just a stellar look. I mean, this is like, makes it, give it, 
you know, this watch you can dress up, dress down. I mean, if you throw it on some nice leather, like I've had it on the whole big supply house Horween for a while, it gives it, you know, a little bit more of a elevated sort of uh, sophisticated look. And right now it's, it's looking pretty rugged, which is fun. And, um, you know, Drew makes, I think he's taking a hiatus right now, but Drew just makes awesome stuff. There's a lot more options for canvas. I think that are actually quite nice. When I had Drew make this for me a few years back, um, it was really, I, I don't think there was anybody else doing quite what he did. And so, um, you know, this is, this is kind of made to order and, and I love this, uh, I love this strap. Yeah. I still don't have a Drew strap and I, I like that guy a lot. His stuff is very good and he's, he's got a cool personal story that I connect with. We, you know, back in the forum days, you know, I would connect with that dude on the fora and, um, I used to always bug him about like how he got into his job and stuff. He's got a pretty cool gig, which I won't yeah. talk about here, but yeah. Yeah. You, if you, you follow him, I think you probably, yeah, you sort of read between the lines, but he, I think he's, he's got a few handles. He's got a personal handle that's, you know, watches. And then I think the, the strap channel is D 22 straps, maybe. Um, but Something like sort that. Of Drew. Yeah. I have a great stuff. Great stuff. I mean, I think, you know, he still makes some stuff here and there. I, I had touched base with him a few weeks ago and I think he was wrapping up a few orders and wanted to take a break for a little while. It's, you know, it's a fun hobby for him. Of course, you know, a small business as well, but not his nine to five. So yeah, um, totally. Yeah. That's a great so that's watch. A good look. Uh, I, yeah. I was about to say, dude, speaking of green dial, uh, Oris, did you, I'm sure you probably saw that, um, what is it? Uh, uh, is it million oyster, billion oyster? What is it? I want to say billion with a B. Yeah, I think that's the the collab. Um, and that dial looks unbelievable. It looks so cool. Mother of like Pearl, the right? And the texture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's I that. have to say that I actually like Mother of Pearl, you know, in general. Um, I don't own anything Mother of Pearl, but I don't, I don't uh, you know, prescribe it to be, you know, feminine or masculine. I think it's just a very, you know, alluring, you know, material and color, obviously. Um, I don't think I would... Prior to that watch release, I don't think I would assume that I would own a Mother of Pearl watch, quite frankly, even though I do like the material itself. That thing is like, okay, yeah, bring that in, put that on the wrist. I'm I'm 100% on board. That thing is very cool looking. And, and I mean, you know, as Oris typically does too, the, the cause that they're associated with is, uh, you know, quite commendable as well. Yeah, that their Aquas is basically my, I think my favorite watch. They have a lot of really cool things and, and they put their spin on, you know, uh, uh, maybe fairly normal looking designs, you know, where maybe there's not a ton of Oris DNA, but the Aquas, um, the watch that you're wearing, that big crown pointer date, you know, that's, those are so, so unique to them and really, really cool. I love the dial. I, that may be the thing that finally gets me off of, you know, my perch because it's with Oris, unfortunately for me, it's not a question of kind of which or whether or not to it's which, which. you know, there's that analysis paralysis. Anyway, that's my, my spiel on them. Um, so oh, you're hundred percent right. What's in the, in, the glass? Uh, in the glass? I sent you a picture of this just a, a few, a little while ago. I had a chance to, and I had tried it once they sent it over. Cause I wanted to, of course, you know, tear it open. I don't let things sit around too long, but our friends from whiskey and watches, sent along uh, a bottle each for us of the Method Vermouth, um, which was part of the Super Bowl wager. You know, the hometown Rams beat up on their on their Cincinnati Bengals. And so they were kind enough to, to, to pay up on the debt. And I made a, a Manhattan. And I, all I did was substitute out the rye for bourbon, sort of going for a little bit of a, a sweeter, uh, smoother profile than the, than the spicier rye. Um, Man, that's some really great stuff. Uh, you know, pretty classic recipe. It's pretty simple, but had a chance to see what they've been raving about. Congratulations to, you know, to, to the guys at Method. 
they're making some really good stuff out there in New York and keep your eyes and ears open for it. I know, you know, Whiskey and Watches talks about it a lot because they really like it. So I'm sure folks here have, have at least uh, come across it, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and co-sign and double stamp it because it made a, a really fantastic Manhattan. Oh, I'm halfway through my bottle already. In fact, there, was, <laughs> there you go. You're ahead of me. Yeah. We didn't plan this, but my poor check also has a, uh, a method vermouth component. So we'll get to that in a second, but that sounds like a good drink. So good on you. So with that foreshadowing, what's on the wrist, what's in the glass, my man. Okay. So this is on the wrist. Well, it's coming off the wrist right now. So you can see this one is the, the Seiko SPB 149. So this is kind of the, the 62 Moss ish watch from about two years ago. It's the blue dial variant and it's the, the limited edition. Um, I think our buddy Spence has one of these as well. And I have this, it's, this is off of the bracelet and this is on the, um, the NATO from kill hubris. So this is that really cool kind of funky colors. It's kind of like a sand, uh, sort of like a, a blood red, a green and a really, really dark blue. And all those colors are kind of made into what looks like a kind of like a cry precision camouflage. And so mm-hmm. it's that, that cool, colorful camo NATO. Um, I am taking this watch off though, and I'm putting on this watch. So this is going to be appropriate for two things. This is the, uh, my Tudor Black Bay GMT. I've got this, um, I think I might've mentioned this in, in weeks previous, but I, I put this on the Forstner pretty heavily tapered Jubilee. And, um, not that I dislike the, you know, the OEM bracelet, but it is quite heavy. Um, the taper is not particularly pronounced and while I don't hate them, I don't really like the rivets. So putting this on the Forstner and I'm not giving up anything cause it doesn't have the adjustability that you get in, you know, like an Omega dive watch or a, uh, a Tudor Pelagos. So yeah, so I'm putting this on, um, in part that, because, oh, go ahead. That's the look for me. I, I think I said it on the, on our, our last episode or, uh, I think it's or two episodes ago. It's it's a great look. Um, you know, you and I have talked about it offline. You know, the rivets. You know, take them, leave them, whatever. They sort of disappear. You know, visually when you put it on. Um, but I think that 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 to me is is a stellar combo. Yeah, I love this watch, and I'm putting it on right now, kind of a because it's going to come up in a funny way. I think in a second with something we talk about, but also I'm trying to kind of manifest. I've I've just been hearing rumors, and I have no idea about how true they are. And it's really more of an impression of a rumor that Tudor is about to drop something. You know, so today is like you know Saturday, the weekend before July Fourth that we're recording this, and I've I just have this weird idea that something's coming, and I really don't even know why. I can't put my finger on it. It just seems like I've heard in a couple of you know. Uh, uh, areas that something may be coming from them. And I kind of hope that's true. I like the brand. So yeah, that's what I'm putting on now. And the main reason really, the, the real reason it's, it's getting hot. It's hot outside. Um, and I don't want to sweat into the NATO. So. And tell Still me what's ready. in the glass. I know it's related to what we were, you know, we're both drinking something uh, at least related in some way. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know if you can hear the ice, maybe not, but um, I kind of did my, riff on, I guess what would be maybe a modded Paloma. Oh yeah. So I, in this is basically a, uh, you know, just a conventional bar glass, right. With an, about an ounce and a half of Fortaleza Añejo, probably better with Blanco, but I'm out of Blanco tequila right now. I need to go see mission or uh Vendome, but, uh, went a little bit light cause it is hot. Um, 
on the booze, just filled the glass basically up to the room with ice. And I added the juice of a half of a large lemon. So, you know, that's kind of a different way to go. And a, uh, I made it up with, instead of grapefruit soda, like a grapefruit seltzer. So it's yeah. got like a lighter, lighter, but like a more bubbly component. And then what I did was, um, I floated just about the equivalent of like a, uh, a large, like tablespoon of the method vermouth on top and just let it seep down into the glass. And just to kind of give it a little bit of that sweetness and some depth to kind of, uh, cut through all of the, you know, the combined sort of sourness from the lemon juice and the, uh, the grapefruit. And it's, it's, I love it. That sounds super interesting. Yeah. It's really refreshing. It, you know what it feels like it wants is a, um, a couple of, uh, leaves of mint and I have mint in the back. So I might make myself another one of these later and, and throw some mint in here and see how that goes. Yeah. Report back to us. So, uh, that way we can finalize the, the optimum recipe. Yeah. And again, yeah. Thanks both to, uh, to method spirits and to, uh, whiskey and watches podcast. Thanks you guys for sending that to us. That was really cool. Very thoughtful. I know it was very hard to get beer out here, beer sent out here and method, uh, the vermouth more than makes up for the lack of beer. So thanks dudes. Yeah, that was super thoughtful. We appreciate it. Yep. So, yep. you know, we, we were exchanging, uh, audio messages with, uh, Rick over at a blog to watch weekly, uh, podcast. And we had sent him a note and said, you know, great job. Keep up the nice work. Uh, and I think I had, we had made a comment about, you know, one of the previous episodes said that the unmet demand for Rolex was shining on other brands, which we thought was sort of a cool thing. And that's a sentiment that we've echoed here. We're actually quite glad to see, you know, pick your brand, but somebody, you know, other brands that are sort of taking that unmet demand and maybe bringing folks into their uh, orbit. Uh, and then we asked what their favorite cocktail was, and uh, we had a, a range of answers. If you listen to their last week's episode, not the most recent, but the the, the week before that, and uh, you know, I think Rick's a, a tea guy. Uh, a few other folks said maybe uh, you know whatever's cold. Uh, I can't remember if Ariel had uh, anything in particular. I don't think he he had anything that was sort of stood out to him. But then Rick sent us a message back, and we figured you know we might play it here. Uh, so you can hear what uh, what he posed to us, and then we we have a, a set of answers to sort of uh, you know uh, play along with the the ta- uh, back and forth and, and tag team action that we got going on. Hey Matt, hey Greg, it's Rick from a blog to watch weekly here. Thank you very much for sending in your question. We hope you enjoyed the response, and congratulations, congratulations on your last show which sounded like it was the first watch podcast recorded from a hot air balloon. So I hope the construction work is continuing slightly quieter. But I have a question in return for you to consider. You have one watch. You have one drink. You have one song. You have one book. And you have one movie. And you're on a desert island. What are you choosing? Have a great show, guys. Okay, so Rick's question basically has to do right with, uh, I guess, a desert island scenario. One watch, one drink, one song, one book, and one movie, one film. And, and I, have to, I have to give Rick some credit. He's a pretty funny guy. He, uh, we had made note that there was some construction going on outside of our recording uh, for the last episode. And- <laughs> And he said, congratulations on the first pod to ever be recorded on a hot air balloon. I don't know if that's accurate. We'll have the fact checkers after today's episode, uh, you know, get on that. But, um, you know, 
we're here to please the people. So it means jumping on hot air balloons and so be it. Well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll count that as a victory of editing and adding the, uh, the soundtrack bed, like the music bed and, and, you know, the ambient sounds and stuff. Cause to our ears in person live, I mean that the sounds were significant, right. And it was very staccato. And I think by the time we edited everything out, it did sound a little bit more like a, like a white noise. And if he's talking about like the burner, you know, on a hot air balloon, (laughs) um, yeah, that's, it sounds weird and it's kind of loud, but it was a thousand times better than what it sounded like in person. I agree. Kudos to you for pulling that off. So, so Matt, what do you think? Should we go one to one and each answer one, uh, together, or should we run down the list and then, and then the second person run down the list? What do you prefer? You know what? I let's do one to one. Yeah. All right. Let's go for it. How about you start us off? This is the old okay. desert island scenario. We've heard this, you know, in other ways, but I think Rick really, you know, spelled this out that we had to pick a number of things here, which is pretty fun. Uh, what's the what's the one watch you're taking if you're stuck on an island? So I'm taking. I kind of gave it away because right because I picked this GMT Master or GMT Master, the Tudor GMT. A GMT Master would work. Um, the Omega Planet Ocean GMT would work, but I would want some kind of robust, highly water resistant steel. GMT watch. Um, you know, you have another time zone, which is nice. Uh, and the fact that you can use, if you know how, um, you can use a GMT bezel as kind of a, a rudimentary sort of sun compass to kind of find, you know, cardinal direction. So that might help. That might be something that could help you kind of survive there. Um, if you're really depressed, you can track the time zone at home, <laughs> wherever home is that you're you're marooned or cast away from. Um, and all of those watches, whether it's the Tudor, the Rolex, the Omega, they all have uh, good water resistance. I have the Tudor because that's kind of the um, you know the the one that I have. In reality, I might go with the Planet Ocean because right, this is a coaxial, and coaxial is known for you know, being more reliable and less maintenance maintenance intensive over a long period of time. So if I'm stuck out on that island for a few years, hopefully the watch won't need a service. That's a good point. We both, I think, had similar thought patterns here. When when this question was sent over, I took it to mean deserted on an on an island, a desert you know, a desert island or what have you. Um, I guess I shouldn't have assumed that, you know. So for some of our folks who live in different locales, islands can mean much different things. But I, in my head, I was thinking sort of castaway. Um, I originally thought maybe, you know, one of those Seiko um, solar prospects would be super, you know, that's the way to really not worry about, you know, any kind of service intervals if we're out there for, <laughs> I'm assuming this was in perpetuity. So uh, that was the way that I thought could, you know, help address that. But I did decide that I wanted to make myself a little bit happy and go, you know, this might be the thing, if I'm going to stare, you know, this might be one of the few possessions that I have, material possessions on the island. And, uh, and so I decided to go with the Pelagos FXD, um, which is a watch I've really come around on since this release. I think it's really cool. Uh, I would love to have that on the wrist. I think the you know unidire- unidirectional bezel would be quite handy. I was thinking a chronograph in my head, but I didn't want sort of all the moving parts of a chronograph. Um, and so I think, you know, utilizing just the, you know, the, the count up uh, uh, feature there would be, would be super helpful in a lot of ways. You know, the, the channel lugs, you know, is going to keep me, you know, probably less concerned about this thing flying off after I've got some sun drenched band that might just tear apart on me or offer some, you know, compromised uh, integrity there. So anyway, I'm going to go with the uh, the FXD because that's one rad watch and I, I could probably stare at that for quite a bit while I'm on this island. 
Yeah, no, that's a good choice. I mean, it's got those channels, right, which limits you. But on the other hand, if your if your strap gets torn or wears out or just gets all you know super cruddy, you just ditch the strap and take like a a makeshift palm leaf or something and MacGyver it. That's nice. right. That's right. Okay, I'll t- I'll start us off with the next one on what drink would we take? Now, I, I took this to mean you know this is the only drink that we have. I guess unless we were able to, of course, create you know create some potable water on the on the island so i'm going to take an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic drink so i don't seem like i'm somebody that's (laughs) got a problem i'm going to just take sparkling water in general i like sparkling water i like it better than flat water so a carbonated you know water is is super refreshing to me and if i could have just one thing in perpetuity on this island it would be sparkling water and then my my drink to enjoy is related but obviously a little bit different too i'm just going to say a highball i would prefer it to be a mezcal highball uh, again, related to the sparkling water, but really refreshing, really simple. Throw some fresh limes on there that I find somewhere on the island, and that's my that's my enjoyable drink. And then, you know, my my survival drink, I, I suppose, is, is the sparkling water if I had to choose just one. No, that's a good idea. That's good thinking. Um, I did sort of the same thing. You know, I figured, okay, if I can only have one thing to drink, it better be loaded with calories, right? Like a lot of glucose. So, you know, you take something like cola or, you know, or better yet, something like Sprite that doesn't have uh, caffeine to, to pull water out of you. But, um, no, I think the more of the spirit of the question is spirit, no pun intended. Uh, I'd probably take good rum right? I'm assuming mm. that there's going to be coconuts all over this place. And if you uh, don't have anything else to make a cocktail, except maybe salt, um, you know, I would assume you could probably find coconuts and, or some other kind of tropical fruit mixed with your rum. Uh, that's vaguely, you know, Gilligan's Island happy hour style. And I'd, I'd probably be good to go. I like that idea. You might even be able to, to play around and <laughs> do some high West infinity barrel kind of situation. Maybe a barrel washes up on the island and you can, you know, age some of your rum in your own way with your own flavors. Yeah, there you go. It's, I'll, I'll use that barrel to float myself off the island after I drink about half of the contents. And then I'll just, it'll get progressively more buoyant as we float because I just keep drinking. <laughs> Love it. Right on. Okay. So one song, this was virtually impossible for me. I'm not, I'm not a huge audiophile or music person, but I figured I'd want something, you know, really big and soaring and, you know, something that's not super specific, um, you know, something kind of inspirational or what have you. Uh, so, and I, I, my mind went in a bunch of different directions, but I thought Hans Zimmer, something kind of, um, you know, big, big musical score kind of symphonic. And I thought, okay, maybe, uh, you know, some of the big, uh, like fixed church organ piece from interstellar, that would be, that would be pretty rad. Um, but I ended up settling on, uh, Hans Zimmer. I believe the title of the track is, um, the might of Rome from the soundtrack for gladiator. Nice. You know, something that's, uh, really kind of, you know, inspirational and, and, you know, at the same time, sort of timeless sounding and not, you know, not poppy. If I had to have that as an earworm, that would be all right. I like that. Hans Zimmer is awesome. Um, I went with Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. Like the Beatles, not a huge, I'm not like a Beatles head. Um, I would not call them my favorite artist, but just a really great song, catchy, sort of hopeful. Uh, also just sort of very, seems very, um, you know, good weather just kind of fun vibes. Um, 
Yeah, that's what I'm going with. Dude, that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What okay, about a so book? What, book? what book are you taking with you? Uh, I'm going to start us off. I'm going to take the the Life of Pi, um, something a little bit sort of fantastical, right? Adventurous. Uh, you know, um, maybe I'll get some inspiration on on riding your barrel off of this island. Um, but it's a great book. Uh, I love Yann Martel, the author. He's really he's really great. Um, the movie was pretty decent a few years back. But the uh, the book, of course, is is fantastic, and um, it's just a that's a kind of book that you could probably read over and over. It had it had to be a book that you can read more than once, obviously. Otherwise, what's the point of bringing it? So um, I'm going with the life of pie. Yeah, that works. In fact, I that last consideration was kind of foremost in my mind when I picked the Lord of the Rings saga, and I'm going to cheat and basically lump everything in in like one cover. You know, get get all the titles, and you know, while I'm at it, I'll I'll squeeze the Hobbit in there because I think those. There have been versions like that in print, but that's the kind of thing that would take, you know, a good long time to read. Um, it's, you know, it's a fun read. There's a lot of kind of deeper meaning hidden in there. Um, and uh, that's something that, you know, I could probably go back to that. Well, I think the real answer though, is I'd probably take the U S air force pilot survival manual, like the old seer, seer instructor manual that, um, that probably has a little bit more relevance, you know, uh, how to, yeah, you know, build snares, how to do, yeah. How to do, uh, uh, you know, fishing, uh, bait lines, um, you know, constructing shelters and, and things like that basic kind of, you know, wilderness first aid for self-care. Um, I, I, you know, got to go through some of that when I was a kid or, or at least a young, young man. And I would, that would be a good reference, you know, something to, to be able to fall back on for skills. No, that's, that's the real answer. All right. So the last one is one movie. And since we're stuck on an island, I take this to mean that we have like, remember those old portable personal DVD players, viewers. So it's basically like a DVD machine with just like a small screen, like a laptop. Uh, I'm guessing that's what we have to watch this because otherwise we would have had a computer or an iPad and we could do a lot more than, than just this one stuff. So I'm assuming it's the portable personal DVD player with one DVD disc that you have. That's right. Yeah. The one disc that survived, we actually had one of those when my kids were little and we had this contraption that you, you know, this was before the days of, you know, every, every back of every headrest in like a luxury SUV or a minivan would have, you know, a screen and you'd rig this thing up. So it would kind of float in the middle <laughs> of the back seat. Yeah. And, you know, your, your kids could watch it on long road trips. Like when, when we would drive up to Vegas or up to central California or whatever. But yeah. Um, so for a movie, this was a tough one for me too. It, you know, there's a lot of choices and there's a lot of interesting and fun things or interesting kind of cool things. I couldn't think of anything particularly relevant. I don't want to pick anything on the nose. Like what was it cast away with Tom Hanks? Um, so I went with um, just one of my, one of my favorite movies from, for all of my life, basically my mother who was crazy to do this took me to see this in theatrical release and its first theatrical release in theaters when I was about eight. Uh, and that was apocalypse now. So I would take, <laughs> that's awesome. I would, I would take apocalypse now. It's a big cinematic triumph, either that or the new top gun, which was pretty rad. Yeah, I agree actually. Um, and that's not even just being super reactive. It's just a good movie. So the, the, the ultimate, 
measuring stick here is that this movie has to be completely rewatchable. Otherwise, beyond even the book, this is completely pointless. If it's not a movie, you could watch over and over and over and over and over and over again. So at first I was going to say Dazed and Confused. I can remember <clears throat> several several years in my you know early 20s literally just waking up with that dvd screen on you know playing because i had fallen asleep watching it and and of course it just stayed on so it's like to me it's like the ultimate you 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 can put it on it's it's a period piece right you know even though it came out it's now kind of an old movie and i guess in the the scope of movies but it was a period piece so it's not going to feel super dated because it was already dated when it was made and uh and i've watched it a million times and so i could watch it a million more but ultimately i decided to go with pulp fiction Another movie that if it is on, I will not turn it off. You have obviously some sort of, you know, light parts and humor. You know, you've got some, it's, it's eminently quotable. Um, and again, you know, I could watch that a thousand and one times and, and, and continue to still watch it. So I'm going with Pulp Fiction. And I will point out that both of our, our movie selections uh, do feature some watch spotting, which is another fun little nugget for us watch nerds out there. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Although I have to say, dazed and confused—that's a, a really out of left field great choice. I saw that again recently, recently, maybe five or six months ago. Um, I streamed it after not having seen it in a long time, and it's it's an it's a trip, isn't it? I mean, you have Cole Hauser, Matthew McConaughey, um, Ben Affleck, uh, Jason London. Yeah, you know all all these people that I you know that was either their first or maybe their second thing. Um, and I mean, Matthew McConaughey obviously is a, a phenomenon. Did you ever see, uh, this is completely off topic, but did you ever see the, the first true detective? No, I didn't actually. I heard amazing stuff about it. Oh dude, it's incredible. I was like, my jaw was on the floor watching that. It was so good. I'll go back and check it out for sure. Yeah. Well, Rick, I hope that answers your question. That's a, uh, a favorite watch, a drink, a song, a book and a movie presumably a desert island if it didn't have to be a desert island maybe i'd I'd have some different choices but and maybe it didn't have to be a desert island but anyhow i hope you uh, both of us went yeah found those entertaining so what do you say greg i know this is um this is actually uh probably a good place to pause and we will insert the rest of this long megasode with our guest shortly what do you think yeah, sounds good. And uh, if, you know, if anybody has a chance to check out the Spirit of Time website, it's spiritoftime.co. So spiritoftime.co. We've been putting up some some fun stuff on there. You know, reviewing a few pieces that we've had in, and 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 putting some other blog posts up there. Would love some feedback. A few folks have checked it out and and kind of gave us some positive uh, you know notes. And so we're going to keep at it. And it's a fun place to sort of build out um, not just uh, you know audio. Uh, content, but also some written and some longer form stuff. So check it out. Yeah, absolutely. So in the meantime, dude, you and I will, I will bid you adieu here. You and I will kind of stop and I'll catch you when you get back. All right, man. Take care. Cheers. Cheers to you and safe travels. Okay, and now we've done that introduction with Greg. We segue over to our guest co-host. It is none other than uh, returning, I guess you'd call it like mean stuntman extraordinaire, Bro Dinky. How are you, bro? Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Uh, great to be here tonight. Excited to be here with you and, uh, you know, going to get ready to talk some watches here. Dude, that is fantastic. I um, 
I'm really, really stoked to see you back, it, especially because, frankly, we had um, the kind of the back and forth. I don't know what we're going to call it, but like, you know, almost like a volley, a rally or, or whatever in tennis, but talking about a, a shared topic. And we've we've each I think uh, each pod has had an episode recently talking about the decade watches. You guys did the decadent decades, right? The 70s. That was awesome. Correct. We just came off of 90s and 2000s. So we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit and um, maybe uh, uh, rate the the watch collections of the celebrity chefs and all that. But before we go any further, let's just do a, a quick wrist check, poor check. What have you got on today, man? What's in the glass? Uh, so I've got on something I've never shared before, but uh, I'm quite happy with it. I know in our group chat and on, I'm pretty sure on one show or another, I've mentioned that I've always had sort of an affinity for something in precious metals. And although this is precious, it's not, it's not solid. But like I said, I, I have that active sort of lifestyle. I don't have a lot of opportunities to wear a precious metal watch. So to have an expensive precious metal watch, maybe full gold or something, it's going to spend a lot of time in the box and I would feel guilty about it. I have with me an Omega Seamaster. It's an oldie. I want to say, I think it's definitely from the seventies. It's uh, it's got the day and date on it and it is gold is, is pretty much the only way I could describe it. It's uh, it's gold capped, but it's got a gold dial, gold markers and inside the markers is black. So it's actually got a really cool contrast. I'll try to get it up there as best as I can. Yeah, but, I can see actually you know, gold indices, gold, everything. And it's, it's, it's honestly really nice. It's only like 30, I think it's 36 millimeters, but yeah, it's uh. It's quite the piece and it's a, it's a real looker and uh, a lot of even watch people are not. They're just like, hey, that's that's a good looking watch. It's got polished center links. It it has all the good parts of a gold watch you would want. And uh, I've never actually showed that to anybody before. I've had it for a minute. Um, again, I don't really like to flex my stuff. I, I, I try not to contribute to that end of the hobby too much. But uh, it's, a, it's definitely a piece I've been sort of waiting in the wings. And uh, tonight I kind of broke it out. In the glass, uh, because Greg is not here appropriately, I have some tequila. And coincidentally, this is actually uh, Tequila Cabal, which you guys had on your show. We did. Let me tell you, this was a tremendous eye-opener. Because if you're like me and you didn't know a ton about tequila, you probably have had Don Julio, Jose Cuervo, maybe Casamigos, and just something about those big brands, it's just not the same. Having this, and it's not just that it's smoother. Most tequilas, when you take them in, you get sort of a, I don't know what's called, almost like a Windex burn up front. And I think that's what turns a lot of people off the tequila is, is that upfront, really assertive sort of lime and acid right in your face. This, and after listening to the episode, just listening to Everardo go on and on about it, I was kind of perplexed. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to try this if this guy's that into it. It is fantastic. I could probably sip this all night. And uh, it's super smooth. It's very delicious. And it's just got so much more balance than most of the, I guess, big bottles, you'd call them. But uh, really great pickup. And uh, so cheers to them and uh, to Greg, who cannot be with us tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Salute to that. Yeah, Greg is, uh, for everybody, Greg is out camping. So, um, dude, you know, just to kind of uh, digress on that topic of tequila, we had um, one of our first early episodes was with a, uh, a pretty big watch dude from Philly. 
and he's a, a huge proponent of, you know, uh, traditional like tequila and mezcal culture. And, um, this guy, Jason K, I don't want to say his last name, but, uh, he, I think he's pretty well known in the watch community in Philadelphia and he supports, you know, the artisanal, um, tequila tradition. And since having that guy on and then being around Greg, I am wrecked for any kind of like big bottle tequila anymore. And there's such a major difference. And, you know, what's enormous great about tequila so far is there's not this massive difference in price. I mean, yeah, they're, they're sometimes a bit more expensive, but, you know, it's not like the scotch world where, you know, or, or wine for that matter, where, you know, you're paying, you start paying an arm and a leg for the really premium stuff. And in, in tequila, fortunately, it's all still pretty accessible, but there's such a massive difference. And I've had their tequila. Um, Greg provided a little bit for me and we did kind of a, a tasting on a follow-up episode. It was, it's excellent. I'm glad yeah, you I got like the Reposado, which again, it's just rested tequila, but it's, it's really good. And, uh, and it's almost like you could taste exactly what he was talking about on that episode where he was saying how for production sake, a lot of the bigger brands or I guess just brands who are trying to really get product out there quickly are pulling the agave too early. And that tequila is supposed to, uh, there's the uh, agave is supposed to be growing for years at a time, <clears throat> at a time, and they're pulling it at like two years when it has to be like seven. And I guess you can taste that. Yeah, well, when you think about it, right, you're you're harvesting and basically taking the entire plant. It's not like a um, like a grapevine, right? Where you know a grapevine will take several years to mature and it will begin producing fruit after a few years. And it, it tends to get progressively better as the vine gets older, but you'll have decades of production out of that plant. If you, if you treat it right, maybe and possibly even longer, you know, there's up in the central coast, there are, they're old, they call them like head trained, gnarly head vines of old um, Zinfandel and like Primitivo. And they're, they don't train them. They kind of grow like wild, you know, those things will go for a hundred years and they produce really great fruit, but that's not the case with agave. And you've got to, I think, you know, let the plant go through its full maturation cycle and everything like that. And you're absolutely right because it takes so long and it's such physically, it's such a big plant. Um, my understanding is that, you know, the big brands, they have to essentially harvest and, and take these plants earlier than they're ready. And they do all kinds of things to them chemically to, to make them taste approximately like what they're supposed to. And it's not as good. And you can tell. Yeah, just from my own experience, I mean, there's certain things that harvesting them early, you actually get a different result, sometimes better. This is just not one of them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Right on. Well, dude, I dig that watch too. And hey, speaking of watches, so I'm going to dive into mine. I I did flex today. Uh, yeah, I, boy. I did that thing that, that we all hate, but I did it. Um, yeah. I, so we had an episode a few weeks ago with the, um, the young girl from she's the, the junior horologist this kid's eight she's, she's super precocious yes yeah, super cute so to say thank you she had discovered recently that she likes maraschino cherries so to say thanks we i took her over a thing of luxardo i'm like okay so here's this is the real jam you know eat don't eat these all at once okay <laughs> but when i when i got to uh to feldmar it was like oh hey um come over here quick, quick, quick. We haven't put these out yet. They literally just arrived. You know, you're, you're on the list to be one of the first you want it and open the box. And it's, you know, they got all the new Seiko 5k XGMTs. 
So um, I walked away with mine this afternoon and I'll do the thing where I can kind of hold this up to the camera for you. So this is the, the 5KX, uh, the actual like reference number, and you can hear how jangly that is, <laughs> um, is the uh, S, I think it's SSK. Yeah, SSK005. Yep. So this is the orange variant. And, you know, in certain lights, you can kind of tell how the, the lower half of the bezel you know, has that sort of grayed out, but it's, it's not easily seen, you know, it's not in all lights. Um, the one thing I would say to people and this, you know, I did not find it off putting. I think it's cool, but this, this probably hues a little closer to the new five KX kind of street vibe yep. than to the old, like legit divers, the dial, the orange color has a little bit of like a metallic kind of a tangerine sheen instead of that flat kind of medium saturated orange, like a matte orange color that you would yep. see on the old, um, the Seiko divers that are orange like that, or something like a Doxa. So this has a little bit more shine to it. It works well because the, the bezel has some shine to it. The bezel is, I believe is a, an aluminum bezel with a thin layer. I think I'd have to do the research on this, but of the, um, hard lex. So it's got the same look as if it was covered with Sapphire. Yeah. So it's a little shiny. And then the, uh, the handset is like a polished, kind of a gold tone handset. So having the, a little metallic element to the dial works well, but it's not crazy. You know what I mean? It's not like a super high, you know, high polish, like blingy dial at all, but it's just a little different. So, you know, be prepared. If you, if you think you want the orange one, you probably do. It looks pretty <laughs> rad. Um, but uh, just, you know, understand that it's going to be a little different if you're a purist. So I picked that up today. Super stoked. I think this is going to be an important watch. I don't, you know, this is as close. I was one of those that was people that was really disappointed with the, the discontinuation of the, um, the SKX. Sure. And this goes, this fills that kind of funky SKX uh, shaped hole in my heart. So that's perfect. And I love anything GMT. So that's what's on the wrist. And in the glass, um, I think uh, I'm just about done with the the uh, the method vermouth that the fellas sent me, this might sound kind of weird, but on a hot day, big glass of ice, straight vermouth, little bit of citrus, and then what I do is um, I'll put like a little float of rye or bourbon, give you know, kind of stir that up, and then like one small dash of, of mint bitters. So I can you can't taste it. There's not enough to really taste, but you can smell it, and it just kind of goes perfect. It's just very refreshing, you know hot weather environment and that's where I live. So that's what's in the glass. Yeah. I also wound up with a, a bottle of method when, uh, around the time they had, they had method on their show. And, uh, I honestly, I found myself more often than not doing exactly like they said on the show, little ice, little soda, some method vermouth. And it was honestly delicious. It really was. It really unlocks those flavors. It's on the, I find myself in the camp of always adding either, an ice cube or a little touch of water to my spirits just because I really like the way it opens up when you get just a tiny bit of dilution. And I found it was the same thing. Just a little touch from either the cube or, or the soda, you, you get a whole new array of flavors. And it, it's almost like they're definitely there previously, but they're just like almost stretched out so you can examine each one as opposed to all in one punch. You know, and that, that's what I really like about sort of that slight dilution factor. Yeah, no, I think that works really well. I do that um, whenever I can. We have fairly hard water here and 
you know, it, it adds a little something. So, it, mm-hmm. you know, when I have the time to kind of run my stuff through the filter, that's when I'll add, like you say, just like one good size drop in like a one ounce, you know, pour of like a, a good bourbon or a scotch or something like that. Just to, and you're exactly right. Um, as long as it's not warm, you know, otherwise, yeah, you, you got it. You got to do some ice. Yeah, you, guys actually corrupt, you guys actually corrupted me um, because when you had your episode with um, Josh and Summer, where you guys were doing the bike tour, you stopped at that. What was it like a, a place for what was it, Thai coffee, Thai iced tea, something like that? It was, yeah, the Vietnamese coffee. Yeah, we, that was we love this place. Yeah. And you're talking about how they use good water and yada, yada. And they're like, yeah, the water is really important when it comes to things. Now, whenever I make coffee, whether it's work, home, whatever, I'm like, okay, this has to be filtered. Like you ruined it for me to the point where now I, I think I overthink it. I think <laughs> I don't usually do it at home. Summer's a big coffee guy. Um, and you know, he probably, my guess is, you know, he's kind of a perfectionist. He probably does that at home. I, I don't really care, but I do notice it when I'm out. And if people do a good job, it's the, well, that's supposed to be the same thing, right? The secret with like the big Northeastern cities, you guys have different water than us. So your pizza is always better. Pizza and bagels. Yep. 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 I, um, oh man, there's a place in, uh, in Vegas where I had pizza about two months ago on my last trip in, uh, oh, come on in the Venetian Grimaldi's maybe. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think they make a big deal about like, they have, you know, the ability to kind of recreate the water chemistry in the kitchen. Um, (laughs) who knows if that's true. They say, yeah, they, they make their dough there and it was good. It was good. I've heard of Anyhow. places importing water from up here. I don't know if that's true either, but it well, I it seems to make a difference. So, you know what? I good on them. It seems to work. I liked it. Man, I this might not have been the move though to put the vermouth in the glass. Can you hear like every shake of the ice cube? <laughs> a little bit. Okay, next time it's, it's going just in a, in a big folks at home. In a big rocks glass. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, hey, man. So one thing, this isn't really a topic per se, but we have to move kind of closer to, um, and we don't really have to, it's just something to talk about that's funny, but like kind of some kind of consensus on what we're going to call the the triumvirate of podcasts. Yeah. uh, I know we've been kicking it back and forth. I still think tripod is very spot on. It's almost too spot on. Triumvirate is funny, but the the tripod is it's right there for the taking, right? I think the only issue, right, is potentially is um, tripod and triumvirate. What if there's a fourth pod that comes up that we just have to kind of bring into the fold? That is exactly my thought because then we're gonna have to expand it to I don't know, cadre or something or what have you. Yeah, it's gonna be like a United Nations of of podcasting. (laughs) But, uh, well, yeah, so the crotch pod, I mean, I think that that plays off your meme and he just replaced the word watch with crotch in anything. It gets funnier. Sure does. Um, okay. So we'll, we'll put a pin in it, but I think that's what we've kind of left it at is the, uh, the triumvirate, the watch pod Alliance, uh, the watch tripod or just the tripod TM. (laughs) All good. All good. We'll revisit it. Um, Okay, dude, before we came on, if you don't mind, I'm just going to like rapid fire this. Uh, we were kind of recapping your decadent decade picks. And 
I'm going to just do whatever I can. I'll say right up front to just bug you about getting that, uh, that Rolex. I think you have to have that date. Just do, let me ask you this, dude, do you, cause at one, at one time we had a, like a massively overlapping collection. Do you still have your Explorer? I don't, I actually wound up moving my Explorer. So I have an open spot for a Rolex, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if you want to think of it like that, right. It, you probably made a good move. You know, it was, it was a, a good time, I think, uh, you know, to capitalize on, on any gains on that particular watch. If we're going to sure. talk about this crap as an investment class, that's, that was a good move, but now you got to get something back. You got to buy low and sell high again. So we saw that, um, Oh, where was it from? I want to say it was from HQ Milton, right? That it was 1971 gray. Yeah, and since our episode dropped, I have had an inbox full of Great Isle date justs, <laughs> for better or for worse. But this one was very unique. Most of the time, they get darker with, or they 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 remain pretty deep. This one was, uh, it almost became like a matte color. It was really unique and and very very interesting and very bad for my wallet potentially, but it. That's kind of what I like about this era of watches. And again, I've seen I've seen some that have gone towards like a fuchsia color and others that have gotten a little bit lighter. And it, you get a different aging almost with every single different dial just because and I guess it's almost because there were I don't want to say faults in the manufacturing, but they just weren't as good as they are nowadays where you're going to have loom plots that never age now. You know, you're going to have materials like ceramic that aren't going to patina much, at least not in our lifetime. You know, so I think that's part of the charm of vintage, and I think that's why I enjoy it so much, to be honest. And those great L date justs have always just grabbed me, and I, I'm going to be in hot pursuit very shortly. <laughs> so, how married are you to the gray dial versus the rest of the form factor? Like, could would you ever consider something like you know, super 1980s grandpa, like the champagne dial or anything? Because I love those. But then there's yeah, blue the, and. The sh- and let me say it's 1603. I, for some reason, I said four. It's 1603 is the uh, reference number on that. But um, the 16013 is the two-tone. I also very much enjoy that. Um, there's also a very, very nice blue shade that is not exactly the same as the current Rolex Datejust, the more modern one, but it's very charming. And then there are some with some really neat patterns. I mean, there's some that are very textured and, you know, it was just different times where everything wasn't so... Um, cut and dry down to the reference number. Like there were, you, you somehow wound up with different dials and different watches and it was a little bit more mix and match than it is, or than it could be nowadays because people are so specific, but you find some really interesting examples that are, they're not even, they're not even, um, you know, Franken or anything. They're just, they were just kind of oddball production. You know, you would run out of certain parts or you would have extra of other parts and you just cobble them together and sell them because why not? And it's kind of just the charm of the era. Yeah. Well, you know, you hear from time to time, right? People kind of complain or poo-poo. If you think of Coke and Pepsi, Ford and Chevy, Rolex and Omega, and people talk about like it sort of disparagingly, but how many SKUs there are and how many different variations there are in Omega and the LEs, you know, they seem like they're kind of over that now, which is great. Although I didn't hate it. Um, but I always remind people like, have you seen the number of like permutations there are in the date just world? or in the, the like old OPs, or as Greg was saying, you know, when we picked watches, um, 
you know, from the decade. So he picked the, the early two thousands, the air Kings There's all these different yes. variations on those things. And that is, I think what makes those cool. And in some respects, it's, it's a more fertile kind of happier hunting ground, I think was the term I used before, but, um, compared to something like a sub, you know, or a GMT master, Oh, an error dial, you know, or a, a stick dial. And that's, you know, that's about all you, you see they're different with those things. Okay. That's, uh, that's an exaggeration, but there's so many, there's not like different dial colors for days, the way there are with, you know, the smaller watches and the, the cooler watches are oftentimes the, I hesitate to use the word inexpensive because there is no inexpensive Rolex now, but the less expensive, you know, um, the more non overtly sport models. And I like them a lot. I have a day chest that I don't wear enough. It's super cool. Yeah. And I remember a, a time where those were sort of the touted Hodinkee Wednesday drop watches. Like when, when they would do their Wednesday vintage drop, there was always two, three, four different configurations of Datejust with different dials, different bezels, whether it be fluted, engine turned, smooth, like there was always just a different thing. And they would just slap a, you know, one of their own branded straps on it in some wild color like purple or lime green. And it would always look good. And I was just always like, yeah, man, I should totally get one of these. And I never did because again, it was just like everybody else. It was, oh, these will always be here. They'll always be there for 2,500 bucks. <laughs> I, I wish mean, they were, but that's what they were offering it for. And it was just like, that was yeah. what the times were when, when they, that used to be that way, but it's just not anymore. Yeah. I mean, it seems like maybe five years ago, you could get a good one for 2,900. Yeah. Yeah. What is uh like, it reminds me of Archie Bunker. You know, those were the days. Those were the days. Yes. Yes. Well, Hey man, speaking of, uh, you're a chef and we're here to talk a little bit about the, the celebrity chef thing. I think that's what we threatened to do a long time ago. And that's what we're going to do a little bit tonight. Um, who, let me start the conversation by asking this, are there any celebrity chefs, you know, by which I mean, you know, people that might be well-known, not necessarily people with a a show, although certainly there's, those people are probably going to be top of mind for most. Um, is there any any kind of cadre of those personalities that you really like and respect, regardless of the watch game? So I think the gold standard for chefs, whether it be whether you consider him a celebrity or not, he's on enough things, and he actually has a pretty kick-ass watch game, is Eric Repair. He is the exec of La Bernadin in New York City. Um, very well-known place, heavy on the seafood. And he is just, you know, he's almost like a, uh, like a next generation chef because he used to be, and he, he admits this, he used to be the hothead, the, you know, perfectionist. And I think he found, I want to say it's Buddhism. Anyway, he got very spiritual and he found sort of just a new, a new way of thinking. And even when, uh, now he's, he's very even keeled. And he says, when somebody gets, you know, fiery in the kitchen and it, and it overflows, he says, they, you know, they, they take their minute, they calm down and then they come back and they, they kind of say, almost give like a group apology because that's where he is in his journey. And if you're going to work in his place, that's what you're going to do. So I thought that was kind of neat. As far as his risk game goes, he is heavy on the Vacheron, which is really cool. 
Uh, and, it, you know, I guess as you'd expect from somebody of his caliber, I mean, he's been seen with Patex. He's been seen with sort of the Trinity watches, all, Rolex also included. Um, I know they've seen him with a Patrimony, a 1921. He just exudes class. You know, that's what it is. That's what I, li- I like about him. And he's just sophisticated and he's articulate. If you ever listen to him, he's on Top Chef a lot as a guest judge. He's on, um, he's on a lot of things, but just listening to him, you, you almost like feel smarter. Like you feel like you're, uh, you're gaining knowledge by listening to the guy where some people it's, it's sort of just for show. You can almost like feel his enthusiasm and his, uh, his passion kind of really just transcends the, the speaking and you, it's just a different level of, pre- of appreciation you get listening to him. No, that's really cool. I'm, I'm familiar with him because I hang out with a number of foodies. Um, I've mm-hmm. never dined at, at any of his restaurants um, to, you know, uh, not my shame, I don't know, but to, you know, to my dismay, I'd, I'd love to check that out because everybody says they're fantastic. Um, but he's one of those that I just, I can't, you know, put my finger on ever having, you know, seen anything significant from him. So I'm going to have to search him out. I tend to like uh, know the people where I can watch like demonstrations of technique or execution of recipe and stuff like that. So that's going to be, you know, like the PBS shows or, or the old style of the cooking network shows where they were actually cooking, you know, instead of going to restaurants and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I'll have to look that up for sure. I have, I have heard that he's a VC guy and I have a good friend in my personal life who loves Vacheron because of, that's how he found it. He found really? that brand through his through following that chef. That's actually pretty awesome. Um, yeah, and and a lot of those TV chefs actually do have pretty awesome collections. I know Emerald is a is a big Rolex dude. I think I saw Yachtmaster, Datejust. Um, trying to think who else. Gordon Ramsay. I know he's. I've seen him with a that the Cream Dial Explorer too. So not the white polar but that previous gen that it's very sought after it's a it's like a yeah it's it's a it's an odd it's a discoloration dial um and they're very valuable super super cool (laughs) yeah it's like a custardy color yes yep so i've seen yeah i've seen seen him with with a couple of uh i've seen submariner uh seamaster but probably his most interesting one is i think he has a breitling cockpit if I'm not mistaken, I, I want to say it's yellow. It's like very out there, like very, you know, non-conservative, sort of a very much a personality piece. And I, I think it kind of suits him well. I think that's kind of who he is at the end of the day. Um, you know, everybody's kind of used to him as sort of the brand name he is now. But I think more of just who he is, kind of that quirky oddball who likes to stand out. I think that Breitling really represents him really well. Well, we talked when you came on our show, you know, about seven months or eight months ago we talked a little bit about how Panerai is in a lot of kitchens, you know, and with high end chefs and things like that. And that makes sense. Um, but the other one I see a lot is Breitling Ming Tsai, right? He's a, a Breitling guy. Yep. Um, I want to say, um, Steven Reichlin, I think is Panerai and Breitling. Definitely Panerai, but the, the Panerai makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, a lot of the, especially the big sport watches and the divers throw that on the big heavy rubber, you know, something that, you know, can come off, you can dismount it, clean it, you know, without having gunk, you know, getting into uh, anything intricate. No, you know, no leather, no cloth. It's just, it's, 
it's meant to get like dirty, grimy, you know, oily, whatever, and, you know, probably can, can take a beating. That's a good choice for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that's kind of the nice part about Panerai is there aren't too many small nooks and crannies. So you can get in there with a toothbrush and really have at it. And you'll probably have the whole thing clean in no time. The screwed lug system, A, it's never coming off. It's never getting pulled off your wrist for one as which is apparently a problem for when I when I had my friend Tom on, who's a Hollywood stuntman. He said that's why he wears his Panerai so much is because he knows that spring bar is never coming off. He said he's had many different spring bars from many different high-end brands, NATO, whatever, bracelet, just they just pop right out. He said, Panerai, never got to worry about it. And I was like, I get that, man. Like, that's that's a big deal. And then on top of that, you know, they all have tremendous water resistance. Well, except for the newer, uh, the Dewey's, I think, right? Those are the ones everybody likes to kind of joke at. They have like 30, I think meter, so. 30 meter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they're a form factor, but not the, not the build quality. Right. But I mean, the, even though like the five sixty I had, I think it was 300 meters. Never have to worry about that thing. And you know, it's a big case, but again, probably easy to clean. Um, and you can wear it on rubber. You know, the rubbers are super comfortable and I just think it's a, it's a, it's just the unique enough aesthetic that somebody who is in the arts would be drawn to. And even just from when we were talking and I was just thinking about a lot of the well-known people off the top of my head. And as I was going through, I'm like, Panerai, Panerai, Panerai. It, you know, there's something there. And I, I think it's a credit to the brand. And I know kind of in the whisk community, they they take it on the chin a lot. But I think for the non-whisk community, I think Panerai is a real game changer for them. It's not a conventional watch, right? It's got no, an interesting case size. It You can get a super blingy, a Chayo case. You can get a brushed one. You can get a submersible. You can get, you know, they'll, they'll PVD it if you want. Like that Bronzo, it, it's just unique. And it, it just gives off a very different design language than most traditional watches you would think of, unless you're somebody who watches tennis and you see the Richard meal on, uh, Rafa or somebody like it's it's just something different enough that you're like okay that looks really good it's probably expensive and everybody's going to know it when they see it across the room so it's understandable that people who are you know consider themselves a higher status would be into that no I, I think that's that makes a lot of sense you know aside from the the practical considerations you know like you mentioned um well I mean okay so probably maybe on the opposite end you know, from uh, repair would be somebody like, you know, not, not, and certainly not to knock him, but Guy Fieri, right? Yeah. How many, that guy has got to be like a walking billboard for Panerai. I think I've seen probably 10 different models of Panerai, he, but he's definitely but, a big watch guy. Oh my God. Large watch. Does, I don't, I don't even mean just a, a guy who's big into watches. I mean, he likes large watches. Okay. Um, Seiko Tuna. Yep. I've seen that. Um, all flavors of Doxa. I don't know how many different Panerai, um, a variety of Rolex, I, certainly like Yachtmaster, yes. the old style and the new ones. Um, boy, I'm trying to think of what else. I think he's had like Nixon, you know, just big. I want to say like, like 42 millimeters is his basement. <clears throat> you know what I mean? He's going, he's only going up from there. Yeah. 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 And the big like 44 millimeter Breitling, I think he's done that stuff too. But that's just who he is. He's out there. He's flamboyant. He's got the hair, the goatee, big personality. Like that's that's exactly who he is. Like he's playing in the correct end of the pool for who he is personally. 
Yeah. And well, and you know, what's interesting too, right? There's no, no supposition about his watch game. It's all on, on camera all the time. It's, you know, clearly he's, he's doing it with some degree of self-awareness, you know, about like it's being shown. So on, on the opposite end of the spectrum from that, you know, in terms of like the, the showiness of it, not to say that that's showy, but you know what I mean? Um, is, uh, Tyler Florence who's reputed to have, and he's done watch podcasts before I've heard him. Really? Yeah. So he was on with, um, uh, Cameron from Weiss watch. Okay. So Cameron and Matt Farah for a year, they did a podcast that was sponsored by, um, crown and caliber. And if I'm not mistaken, Tyler Florence was a guest with them. He talked about, he had this laundry list of great watches, but you don't really see them on camera with him. He's kind of like a Bobby Flay who's got like the, I think Bobby Flay is like a 41 millimeter. Yeah. Like the date just 41, but you know, behind the scenes, I'm he's reputed to have a great watch collection, but that's all you ever really see him with. Whereas Fieri on the other hand is just like, boom out there. He's got the entire collection kind of rotating through all the different seasons of his shows. Yeah, it almost seems like he has as many watches as he does cars. <laughs> Which is his car game is also quite good. I gotta hand it to him. Oh, so I wasn't aware of that. I mean, I, I know the one car that he has on the show. He always you know? has. I feel like he always has a different muscle car, like in a different color. And you know, they might not all be his, but can't knock it. And I don't know how he he drives and and produces the show, but good for him. <laughs> you know what? I gotta think. I mean, this is the cynic in me, but I gotta think they flatbed that car all over they, the place. They probably do. You know, that, that, or they've got, you know, two cars, like one east of the Mississippi, one west of the Mississippi, who knows, you know, they fly them around. I'm sure he's, his production company's probably got a pretty good budget for, for transporting the car around. But uh, after I, after I looked into everything that went into the new Top Gun, which I finally got around to seeing, like, I'll believe anything. Like they had cameras mounted to the front of the F-18 or whatever, and they were just, I was watching like this behind the scenes. And I'm like, this is insanity. Who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> so, so what'd you think of the movie? I know we're going to digress. I thought it was here, great. But... I thought it was great. Um, I don't want to say anything that will give away anything for anybody who hasn't seen it, but I, you know, I really enjoyed it. I thought they tied it back to the first one enough. Um, you know, it was a fun two hours. My wife really enjoyed it. So I think that was a good barometer of how good the movie maybe was. Um, it was like a perfect summer blockbuster, wasn't it? It was, it, it, it reminds me of like, and it might just be the nostalgia talking, but when I was a probably, I don't know what a 10 years, 11 year old, when independence day came out around July 4th, when I was like 11 years old, that was the ideal summer blockbuster. It had aliens, it had Will Smith being Will Smith. It was fun. You know, they had all the, the catchy one liners, Randy Quaid doing his own insanity thing. It was just like a super fun thing. And now that I'm an adult and I probably look for a little more substance in my movies, even though I still love Independence Day. Um, this was just like the perfect beginning to end movie. And my, my wife was a like a 50-50 split of awe and crying the whole movie. But um, aside from the part where she dropped a drink on me, it was a good time by all. So wait, your wife cried through part of uh, Top Gun? So all the parts where they, they started talking about the feeling stuff, she was very okay. sad. And then all the parts where it seemed like you were in the cockpit. She was like gripping the seat. So, you know, I think she got her money's worth. That's perfect. That's awesome. A lot of yeah, IWC as expected. <laughs> they did a really good job in that movie. I think, right. The product placement was perfect. 
you know, everybody's got it. And except for the stopwatch, I didn't, it wasn't like too in my face. The first time I saw it, the second time I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's, you know, when you're looking for it, um, you know, it's a lot more, you know, out there. I, um, I went to a screening on the opening day and I was invited by, uh, a guy who's kind of like my podcast mentor. I, I mean, you may, I've talked about it before on the pod, yes. so I won't belabor it, but yeah, the guys, you know, he was a top gun instructor and it was with the, the, the prior commanding officer at top gun and with a bunch of guys who'd some, an older generation of pilots who'd been part of the flying in the first movie. And then newer guys who'd been, you know, done some of the flying and coordinating for the, the current movie. And I was totally wa- geeking out, watch spotting all these guys and it was everything from, you know, G-Shock and uh, uh, what do you call it? The Citizen, you know, the people definitely have those Citizen Nighthawks, but probably yep. more than anything, um, the Brightling Aerospace, I probably saw half a dozen of those, maybe one Navi, uh, one or two um, GMTs. And, you know, my guy has his, uh, his Omega Seamaster, that electric blue, but, you know, um, no, no IWC in the audience. <laughs> at least, uh, at least not in, among that group. Maybe they were all too old, but that's cool. Well, dude. So of the celebrity chefs, so um, we talked a little bit about Fietti, right? We talked a little bit. Was, oh, dude. Okay, I have to ask because I mean, you're up there. Do you have you ever had a chance to run into? Because I think he lives on Long Island, right? But uh, Jacques Pepin. I have not. I wish I could. Um, he's just somebody who he's almost like uh, like we have Grail watches. He's like a, a Grail caliber chef, right? Like he's he was right there with Julia Child. He's probably mentored everybody in the entire business, and he's still out there doing it. Like he has instructional videos that you can watch on YouTube. You know, even for newbies. He dices like an onion with a paring knife and it's flawless. And you're like, I don't even know how you just did that because, you know, generally you need a little, a little bit of leverage. You want a longer blade. Like, and he's just casually talking through the whole thing. And, and he's like, oh, sometimes you got to take off a couple extra layers because the top layers aren't good. And I'm like, it, it's almost like uh, when you put on a noisemaker and it's just like the, the ocean, like you're just listening to it. And you're like, oh, this is making so much sense. It's just like a relaxing watch. Like he's. He's just like the face. He's one of the big faces of food just across the globe. But he, he's just so interesting because he's seen it all and he's done it all for however many years. And even when he's on a show like Top Chef, like he, he'll still throw people in his in their place, which is great. But he's always like very humble about it and very constructive. And I feel like what he has to say is always very insightful, which I respect. Like I don't like people who just talk for the sake of you know, hot air, like, or just production's value. Like what he's saying actually makes sense. And it, it sort of sticks and you're like, okay, like that was a thoughtful response. So I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And if I ever did run into him, you'd probably see it on the account. So keep an eye out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There'd be, Oh, if I ran into him, there'd be so much fangirling. It, it's, um, I don't know what they call it. There's a term for it, but what is it like ASMR or whatever, but like that, the, you know, the sensory kind of, Ah, you know, the sort of relaxing thing. And I know exactly what you mean watching those videos, um, like the La Technique videos. Yes. And there's there's one in particular, I remember he does with this semi-frozen piece of butter. 
And in the space of like, what seems like three or four seconds, he takes, you know, like just a, a, you know, like a, a four inch utility or a paring knife. And he turns that thing into a, uh, a rose, um, you know, a rose, not, not a rose petal, but a flower. And, you know, the way he kind of carves that out and he's like, and just, it's like nothing for him. And you just sit there and watch that and like, oh my God, but big Panerai guy. Yeah. And that, those type of, you know, hand movements and muscle memory, those are not developed overnight. Like those are years of repetition or training or just trying to be as super accurate as possible. And it's something that kind of goes underappreciated and unnoticed, especially in this industry, because you're just kind of judged on consistency and on the customer end, you're just trying to get what you expect when you order, right? But when you get a nice garnish, you're like, oh, this is really nice. When the person who made that churned out 200 of them for that night and they're, you know, some sort of complex, crazy garnish, like something like that, you have to be so precise with. And you wonder how many times he did that over and over and over. It's it's sort of like when when I was first learning to to take the skin off of a fish, right? You have to have the skin side down, flesh side up. You'd make a little incision near the, the tail end. Then you put the knife on an angle and where you made the incision, you grab the outside. So the, the, I, it, I'm right-handed. So it would be the left hand. Cause I hold my knife in my right. And then you slide the skin out from under the blade basically. And the blade takes the entire fillet off. And it's just like one fell swoop and you have a fish fillet. And I remember watching it the first time and I was like, oh, let me try that. Didn't come out great. Had to like take a little extra skin off. And the person who taught me how to do it was like, yeah, try doing a few thousand. You'll be all right. And I was like, damn, like this dude really did a few thousand of these in his career. And he's just like, you, you'll learn eventually. And it's it's amazing to to see because you don't start to you don't think about things when you know how to do them. But watching somebody new do it, you kind of understand wow, I know the exact amount of pressure I have to put in to get the exact result. And somebody who doesn't has basically an infinite amount of variables there. And there's almost no way they can get it right without doing it. So you just, you get an extra appreciation for all of those type of super hands-on muscle memory type activities. It's, it's really amazing. It makes you wonder for somebody like Uncle Jacques, I think, as you called him, if he was the first guy to kind of start wearing a Panerai in kitchens, and now everybody does, because um, that just kind of the influence you suspect he had. Anyhow, all right. So my vote, though, for I guess best overall celebrity chef game, I guess it has to be for Fietti because just you see it. But what do you think? Yeah, I think he has, first of all, the most diverse collection. And I don't know if it's just because it's out there more or not, but you just feel like his collection is well thought out, at least for him. Like he's put some thought into this. This isn't just let me go buy every obnoxious watch on the planet. Like this is him. This is what he likes and he's going to wear it. Awesome. Like we said, a lot of people who go to Panerai, I know I've seen Morimoto with Panerai. We talked about, you and I talked about Claire Smith the other night, Panerai. Almost oh, every chef. Ama- that wasn't I've- that an amazing watch on her? Yes. And uh, the band is stellar. I love that. It was like a lime green alligator or something like that. And I, I remember it, it just sat with me and I was like, this is so badass. Like, I, I can't tell you. And, and she's great in her own right. Like, she's very well known in Europe. Um, But most of these 
chefs all have something Panerai. And again, I, I think it just goes back to the being different and, you know, every single one of these people looks at things from a, a stylized standpoint on a daily basis, right? When you're plating, even if it's a dish you've never plated before, you have sort of a, an idea in your head before you put something to the plate. Like I know exactly where I'm going before I go there. And when you have a younger person or somebody who's less experienced or somebody who's not that good at plating, you can just tell that they're overthinking it the minute they get there with their first ingredient where you're saying, okay, you could have gone a, B, C or X, Y, Z, but you didn't do either one of those. And now we have to, we have to make this look good. It's weird because I, I don't really know how to describe this as a talent, but even when I was very early in my career, I worked for a crazy Greek lady who used to throw things at me and say awful things, but sort of just trial by fire. <laughs> as you, you've heard of, if you ever read, uh, read Kitchen Confidential, it's all that. Um, Yo, yeah, she I did. said, she would, so she, what she liked to do, the way she used to like to run her kitchen was she would be in sort of what we call the middle position, which you don't really cook anything. You're doing a lot of plating and sort of helping out with the expo. So she would come to you with sort of an incomplete plate. She'd either put down whatever, a starch or something, and she would expect you to finish it the way she wanted it. And when I first started, how could I have known that? And she would just say, you'll get it eventually. And eventually I did. And I understand she liked to stack things. So she would like to whatever, put a scoop of mashed potato or something down. And then she would want her asparagus laid across it, protein stacked sort of vertically on it, and then any garnish on top of that. And it's just what she wanted. And it became sort of a nonverbal communication eventually to the point where everything was good. And if she wanted it different, she would tell me. So it, it it's amazing that these people sort of have that eye, but I think that's the same sort of eye that draws them to Panerai in that anybody else you know off the street wouldn't have thought of this if you said hey draw me a watch they would have never gone with this so i think that's what sticks out to them it's sort of the the little niche stylized you know um intricacies of panerai that, that really get to them but i find that's in most people's collections so i think guy probably has maybe one of the most diverse i i gotta give him the props there also uh I found out Morimoto, in addition to having a Panerai, is a big Grand Seiko guy. So he got extra points on my list. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense that he would be. We did do a little like research in the back end of this. And I'm like, yeah, of course. That makes a lot of sense. Total and sense. That's good sense. Dude, let me ask you. This is kind of a wild card. Have you ever heard of – she used to be um, – I think she's kind of more of a, a lifestyle and cooking writer. But she was on The Kitchen from time to time. Her name is uh, Marcella Valladolid. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I believe it's Valladolid. You know what? You're right. I think Thank it's a you. double L. Yeah. You, yep, you're correct. Um, but she's got solid watch game too. Like uh, I've seen her in a variety of Rolex and Audemars Piguet. She's a, a Royal Oak chick, and I'm I'm always kind of curious if there's something that's maybe a little too nice for the kitchen. Like Panerai for me, I guess the thing that pops into my head is it's the anti-hero watch. You know, maybe that's that makes kind a of, lot of sense. maybe that's where, yeah, like the, the high end chefs in the, because it is art, right? I mean, if you're an artist, it's like the sort of the anti-hero artist is the, you know, the person that works in a, in a high end kitchen. And I've got to think there are probably some watches that look really cool or that are, are really like flex watches, but probably don't belong in a kitchen for real. And I, I got to think an AP is one of them. 
or a reverso like Rick Bayless. I think I, I, I don't know this for sure. Cause I've never seen it up close, but I think Rick Bayless is a, a reverso guy. I'm like, dude, how, huh? But that's that kind of watch is what he's got on. Well, here's the interesting wrinkle with that is if it's a reversal, that doesn't have two faces, right? The original idea was you flipped around. I think when you were playing polo, so the point was you marked True. up the back of the case. So if you could maybe stay away from the water resistance end of it and just if you're just dealing with metal contact, you could flip it around, maybe get away with that, possibly. But I think you're right. I probably would not. I'm going to be honest. I really would not wear many nice watches in the kitchen. I, and when some people, even now, people who have listened to this or my own, you know, uh, wrist shoes radio, they have seen at times where I'll, I'll drop a wrist shot and I'll be wearing like the Shunbun and they'll be like, what are you doing with that in the kitchen? And I'm like, it's an easy day. I'm pushing paper. It's fine. I'm not getting involved. Like, but like, that's a prime example of like a watch watches that I don't want to wear at work because again, everything is metal. Even the, if you have to reach, you have to reach into refrigerators. They're either down by your feet or they're up high. They're, there's no such thing as just like easy access. So you're going to be putting that thing at risk every time you reach in to grab something, whether it's a pan, whether it's a cold item, whether it's just not worth the risk. You're going to scratch the crap out of it and ding it. And when you have things with really nice finishing on it and coatings and really fancy materials, it's just simply not worth the risk. It's really not worth wearing it. Um, I gravitate again to mostly to watches that I can wear on rubber straps or watches that have, you know, sort of that beater factor where I can not really care. And I, I wear my Seiko Solar most of the time, the little 38 millimeter, and it, it it does the job perfectly. It's it's always on time. It's a quartz. Um, and even despite me kind of wearing it recklessly, it really doesn't have many marks because if anything, I usually, I wear it on a Tropic. I usually wind up scraping the Tropic. No big deal. Um, but that's those are my ideal watches. Uh, sort of a quartz watch, tough watch, heavy water resistance. That way you can you don't have to worry about steam. You don't have to worry about um, you know that's that's sort of the the gripe with water resistance. Everybody says yeah, but fifty meters, nobody's going to go fifty meters. Yeah, but you also have to account for sort of that dynamic pressure where if you're getting like let's say I, I have these absurdly priced combi ovens, which also add moisture when you're cooking. Now, if I open one of those, I get a, basically a blast of moist air comes out. Now I understand that doesn't sound like much, but if I'm going to wear this Seamaster, can I trust that that air isn't going to get pushed beyond the gasket? No, I can't. So I'm not going to do that. It's just not worth the risk. So where you see a lot of these celebrity chefs, like I've explained before, when they wear really nice stuff, it's usually because they're not online. They're usually either managing the ordering finances, et cetera, or they're doing expo or they're just sort of overseeing, which is fine. But very rarely are you going to see somebody mixing it up unless they've, and you can tell if they are, that watch is going to be shot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, um, it's funny. I just banged my watch onto the desk and like I saw, you know, a little pop up in my, <laughs> in my waveform here. I know I, I know I caught it. I'll have to edit that out maybe, or maybe not. Who knows? So I tell you what, let's just use this to segue into our last topic. Cause we're coming up on an hour and you're, you're way later than me. A watch that I do not see 
And I would think maybe that I would, given, you know, people talk about, you know, uh, uh, Panerai and Breitling and, and Rolex Deep Sea and Submariners and the Seiko watches, et cetera. Um, you know, it's a, it's a little fancy, but it, it certainly is built to take a beating. And that would be something like a Blanc Pond 50 Fathoms. And that's like a really ham-fisted way, right, to transition to this next sort of pseudo topic. But we were talking about this offline, too. So Blancpain is of, of the higher end brands is probably one of my favorites. There's no probably about it. It's one of my favorites. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I became aware of this kind of little known fact that, you know, Blancpain is aligned pretty heavily to high end culinary. And, um, you know, they're, I think they partner with the Michelin guide and, um, you know, I'm holding this up right now, kind of leaning away, but we were talking about this a little bit, right? In the, you know, the annual publication that they put out, like their marketing, you know, magazine or, or whatever you would call this, it's uh, the title of it is uh, Letter du Bressou, you know, so letters from Bressou. Um, they have a, you know, a series of really significant, very well done. Um, the photography is excellent, but these long form articles on, you know, high end cuisine in, in France and in in Spain and, you know, all of that kind of thing, the, the bon vivant stuff that aligns with our hobby. Right. <laughs> um, and so I, I, have you had a chance to check any of this out or learn any more about this? I've, I've read some of these articles. They're incredible. They got some, like I said, some great photography. It's all really deep stuff and it, it puts absolutely any other sort of, uh, uh, mainstream food publication I've ever seen to shame in terms of the coverage, the quality of the coverage and the writing. What did you think that's of that? What, that's what I was going to say was I've never seen such depth. And, you know, I've seen everything from, um, you know, your Bon Appetit's and, and all those sort of stylized food magazines that are a little more food stylist than they are maybe culinary. I mean, they're good. Don't get me wrong. They're not bad in any way, but they're just very, you know, sexy food photo staged, you know, sometimes they use, um, they'll use like glue to hold the food together in a perfect way. It, 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 sometimes they'll draw in like, um, moisture because you can't photograph moisture. It'll evaporate under the hot lights. So it's very, uh, produced, I guess I would say this seemed almost very raw and very just so deep in the techniques and everything. I was, I was pretty blown away. I was really surprised that first of all, a watch company would go in as such, but just that anybody would sort of have that grasp. Because again, I always sort of talk about um, culinary from kind of both sides from sort of the outer outside looking in and sort of the inside looking out. And it's, it's just two very different viewpoints. And I thought they did a good job of, of sort of bringing them together, like blending that where you can get it from the outside and sort of take it in from this really in-depth analysis. I'm kind of astounded. Like I, I didn't really know that until you brought it up to me and I was kind of blown away. I mean, I guess I should expect that because Blanc Pond is white bread, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Not in a, you know, in any kind of ethnically disparaging way, but no, uh, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, um, it's interesting, right? It's, you know, we think about, okay, uh, there, it seems like different brands have these sort of areas of interest, you know, human interest or human endeavor that they stake out for themselves. 
And, you know, with Omega, it's going to be, you know, like, you know, space travel, um, you know, going to the moon, the space agencies, that kind of thing. I mean, that's just one example. Um, you know, Oris is like, you know, ocean conservation and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, and Blancpain has, Blancpain actually has undersea stuff as well. Um, they've done some, some really good work and supported good work there. But the the culinary thing was just, yeah, it's kind of, isn't it? It's a, it's a, like a hanging curveball of human interest <laughs> from, you know, from a, a, a big Swiss like luxury watch company. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it really does tie in very well. I'm almost kind of surprised nobody else is doing it or if they are, they're doing it very low key. Maybe, and maybe that's a good thing. But yeah, uh, and it, it, it's sort of that same appreciation. You know, I was talking to a lot of people today. I went to, a, to an event and they were just saying, it's astounding that, and it, this parallels to cooking in that you think watches, wristwatches have been made for hundreds of years now. And how did they ever get things that small and machine them that small and be that consistent when they had such like now we have such better technology and more consistent machinery. And how did they ever get to that level of watchmaking so long ago? And it's kind of the same idea in that now we have all these fancy machines. You have sous vide, you have these giant Hobart mixers and things. How did they ever get to the same level of perfection when everything was done by hand? No, that's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, to come back to the, um, the Jacques Pepin thing. Have you ever read his book, by the way? I have not. I definitely have to get on that. Okay. So dude, yeah. You know what? Text me your address. I'm going to say, I, I gift this book to everybody who's even <laughs> vaguely interested in this stuff. It's such an entertaining read. It's so charming. But he talks about, you know, his first time in kitchens in like 1940s France. And, you know, it's a big deal to get promoted to basically tending the oven. And <laughs> it's the, it, the oven is the oven. It's, it's a temperature. What temperature is that? Well, we're not exactly sure. It's not adjustable. It's different every day based on the weather and the kind of wood and how it's seasoned and how much wood you put in there and how much airflow. And you just got to figure it out and work with it. And, you know, the range top to the extent that it's like a range top that we're thinking of, they have different areas that are hotter and you just kind of figure it out. Okay. Like if it's cooking a little too fast, let's move to a different part of the range top. Um, You know, and you're just watching stuff and it's done when it's done. You know, the temperature, is it 325 or 375? Well, today, I don't know. You know, we'll figure it out. And how they did that, you know, the the level of cooking in like the 1800s, how old is Lescoffier? You know, it's not yeah. new. The, and they, the technique was there, you know, 100 plus years ago before all the machines. Like you said, how did they do it? I don't get it. Like there's no microwave. <laughs> there's no electric yeah, like, knife. What? Like I said, I, I have a... I have a pair of $20,000 ovens that stand behind me at work. And after Thanksgiving, I can program them to when the timer is up to play. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Okay. <laughs> they certainly didn't have that, but they have absurd things. They have I, inside, there's a temperature probe that you put inside whatever you're making and the oven will recalculate how long it's going to take to be done and what temperature you want to bring it to. It's absolutely absurd. They have something called overnight roasting where 
let's say I make something that takes a long time, a really big cut, or let's say I need something like a turkey done for 8 a.m. and we don't show up till 8 a.m., right? I can set it to overnight roast. It will cook it, stop cooking it at a certain point, just long enough to let it carry into doneness, and then it will hold it at the proper temperature overnight. And it will not be overcooked. It will not be cat food. It is unbelievable where technology is gone. And it is also unbelievable how they accomplished these things so long ago. Oh, yeah. For, it, it's it's amazing. Well, and maybe that's really the kind of the the impetus, I guess, behind a brand like Blancpain supporting that, yep. that area of human endeavor. Because it is really, it is one of the uh, one of the things I think that makes life worth living you know, and enjoying your life as much as possible. You can be in pretty much any kind of human circumstance and something like good food for, from whatever your point of view is uh, on the face of the planet is going to be something that is like uplifting and, and a joy to participate in, whether you're eating it or making it or whatever. Maybe not if you're making it for 200 people <laughs> and a crazy Greek lady is throwing shit at you, but oh. you know what I mean? Yeah. That was considered the rite of passage. The the guy who had the position before me, he said, he after it happened, he goes, oh, well, was it for you? I said, oh, it was Chilean sea bass. He goes, oh, for me, it was salmon. He's like, you're in the club. I was like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks, buddy. Right on. Well, dude, hey, it's been a pleasure. We've been going for over an hour. I don't think we'd intended to run this long, but I can I can talk with you about food and stuff like that uh, indefinitely. Um I, we usually do a recommendation. My only recommendation is check out the Blanc Pond website. You can register for the uh, the newsletter that they do. That's free. And my understanding is that they will ship you the annual for free. Just just request it online. It's worth it. If you're even remotely interested in kind of the finer things, finer living and food, check it out. Oh, and the watches are pretty good. And check out the new 5KX GMT. Definitely. Yeah, definitely check that out. We need that to be a, uh, a sensation, but dude, it's been great to see you again. Um, you know, I love the back channel conversations. You are, you're a great raconteur. You're a funny dude. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you subbing for Greg. Absolutely. Anytime. And, uh, the three of us need to do an episode soon. For sure. I still think it would be awesome if we did a, uh, a YouTube, like a, a cooking thing. That would be hilarious. Yes, if we could combine the, the East and West Coast, we should definitely do that. Totally. Well, hey, dude, with that, I'm going to let you go. Cheers. Thanks for coming on and get try to get a good night's sleep. Definitely. Thanks, Salute. Bro. Salute. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.